You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. All right, so tonight we're going to be in Job chapter 38. We finally made it. Uh, we're going to get to listen to God speak. And I really struggled this week with, uh, you know, do I combine chapters 38 and 39 or do I just keep it at chapter 38? I think there's a, I didn't want to overwhelm you. Um, so we're just going to keep it to chapter 38, and then we'll look at uh, chapter 39 next week. But we've listened to the cries of Job and the counsel of four other men, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, for a long time. And there's been ups and downs. There's been a lot of monotony, a lot of repetition. But now we get to hear God speak. And it's, it's as if God has listened long enough, and now he's going to inform Job of his correct place in, in all of this going on. And uh, as I was reading through this chapter, you know, a couple of things struck me. And I think before we dive in, there's a few interesting things that we have to take note of. And, and the first is that, you know, this storm has approached, and God's going to speak from out of this storm. And it's interesting, the English translation tells us that God answered Job from a whirlwind. And so, like we saw last time, Elihu, he spent a great deal of time just prior to this, using the power of a storm as imagery while pointing Job to the power, authority, and majesty of God. So he's using this storm as a backdrop. And I mentioned multiple times, I don't think that it was just imagery, I don't think it was just a picture that Elihu was drawing, but there was an actual storm behind him. There was an actual storm approaching, and he was using that to his benefit, the call to Job's attention, you know, again, the power, authority, and majesty of God. And uh, as we think about, well, God's going to speak from this storm or from this whirlwind, what does that really look like? And uh, the Hebrew word that's translated there, it's Sahar, but the, the Hebrew word that's translated as whirlwind, if you look at it across Scripture, it can be used as uh, a storm or as a strong wind. So it's almost like in this translation or in this, in this use that they're combining those, a strong wind and a strong storm, and that's where we get whirlwind, right? Because if you think about where does a whirlwind come from, well, it's going to come from the middle of a storm. And you don't, you don't very rarely will you encounter a tornado uh, without a large storm, right? That's where it's going to be found. But I think, and maybe it's just me, but I tend to believe that it, it, it might be better for us to understand just the simple fact that God spoke out of this storm as opposed to, you think about, I don't know, I'll date myself, and you know, I grew up in the church, and you think about maybe a felt board with a tornado in a face and God speaking out of a moving tornado. Like, I don't know that that's the best way to think about it, but just to think about the concept of God is going to speak out of this storm. And there's also this idea from this Hebrew word that uh, of a tempest or, or wrath, right? So there's anger here. So the idea is that God's not very happy. He's listened to these men speak just as long as we've listened to these men speak. They've said some crazy things, and God's not very happy about the way that they portrayed the situation and the way that they portrayed him. And so uh, I think we can see that based on what God has to say here in these, these next few chapters. 
And maybe you'd ask the question, another thing that we need to look at is maybe you ask the question, well, isn't it strange? Why would God choose to speak from a storm? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Is that, is that realistic? Is that something that we can actually believe? Um, I think maybe, maybe it is a little strange that God speaks from a storm. Uh, but, that, but that image does convey the idea of power. It does convey the idea of, of wrath. And I think it should also, I wrote down here that it should draw our minds back, but maybe it should draw our minds forward to Exodus chapter 3, where God chooses to speak how? He speaks from a burning bush, right? So, so why would we think any different of God speaking out of a storm than God speaking out of a burning bush? Both are possibilities. Both would more than, you know, would definitely, they would draw your attention, and if, if God's speaking out of a storm, it's going to draw your attention. If you walk by a bush and it's burning, but it's not being consumed and God speaks out of it, it's going to draw your attention. So, so God is using this storm to draw the attention of these men, and, it, and we have to note that it, it's not out of character for him to speak this way because we see it elsewhere in Scripture. So to, to us, yeah, it seems a little strange, but it's not out of God's character. Uh, the third thing is, well, He's come to speak, and what role is he going to speak from? And it's very clear from this chapter that, that God has come to judge Job. He's, he's speaking from the role of a judge, and it's interesting that that's, that's exactly what Job had requested. Job wanted a judge, right? And now Job is getting for what he asked for, and, and maybe as a side note, we need to be careful what we ask for, right? But God is speaking as a judge, and that's what Job asked for, and that supports this idea of judgment or a judge. It supports the presence of God in a storm. Um, and I wanted to read to you, before we dive into to, to Job, in Psalm chapter 50, we see this same kind of idea of God as a judge. And I think you can draw a lot of parallels between what we see here in Job and what we see in Psalm chapter 50. But it says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. From Zion, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. Our God is coming. He will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes him, and a storm rages around him. So there we see that idea of a storm again. On high, he summons heaven and earth in order to judge his people. There we see the comparison to a judge. Gather my faithful ones to me, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God is the judge. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your household or male goats, goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice a thank offering to God and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. But God says to the wicked, What right do you have to recite my statutes and take my covenant on your lips? You hate instruction and fling my words behind you. When you see a thief, you make friends with him and you associate with adulterers. You unleash your mouth for evil and harness your tongue for deceit. You sit malign your brother, maligning your brother, slandering your mother's son, you have done these things, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you, but I will rebuke you and lay out the case before you. Understand this, you who forget God, or I will tear you apart, and there will be no one to rescue you. Whoever sacrifices a thank offering honors me, 
and whoever orders his conduct, I will show him the salvation of God. So that entire chapter promotes this idea of God as judge. It promotes this idea of a storm raging around him. It promotes the idea that he's against the wicked, that he's for the righteous and the faithful, and that he's going to make that very clear. And that's what we see here in Job chapter 38, 39, and moving forward to the end of the book. So God has come to speak from the role of a judge. And then the last thing, before we dive in, that stood out to me is something I think it's so easy for us to just glance over is the idea that God is faithful to speak. I mean, I mean, Job has been calling out, I want to hear from you. And we finally get to the end of the book, and, and God is faithful to speak. As I'm studying and reading different commentaries, uh, Dale will appreciate this, but Matthew Henry, you know, in his commentary, he said this, that Job had silenced his friends, but he didn't convince them. He said Elihu had silenced Job, but he hadn't brought Job to admit his guilt before God. It pleased the Lord to interpose. The Lord in this discourse, he humbles Job and brings him to repent of his passionate expressions concerning God's providential dealings with him. And what I like about that so much is that phrase that Matthew Henry uses. It says it pleased the Lord to interpose. God was faithful to step in. It pleased him to speak because he did so to set the record straight for all the parties that were involved. And he wanted to do that. He comes as judge and acts as judge to draw people back to a proper understanding of who he is and a proper relationship with him. So even in his judgment, God's desire was to restore. He, he wants them to get it right. He wants them to understand who he is, and he wants to draw them back to himself. And so that's what we're going to see as God speaks here in chapter 38. And it says, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it bursts from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and total darkness its blanket? When I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place, when I declared, you may come this far, but no further, your proud waves stop here. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn to its place so it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it? The earth is changed as clay, as clay is by a seal. Its heels stand out like the fold of a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked and the arm raised in violence is broken. Have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked in the depths of the oceans? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the road to the home of light? Do you know where darkness lives so you can lead it back to its border? Are you familiar with the paths to its home? Don't you know? You were already born. You've lived so long. Have you entered the place where the snow is stored? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I hold in reserve for times of trouble, for the day of warfare and battle? 
What road leads to the place where light is dispersed? Where is the source of the east wind that spreads across the earth? Who cuts a channel for the flooding rain or clears the way for a lightning to bring rain on an uninhabited land, on a desert with no human life, to satisfy the parched wasteland and cause the grass to sprout? Does the rain have a father? Who fathered the drops of dew? Whose womb did the ice come from? Who gave birth to the frost of heaven? When water becomes as hard as stone and the, for and the surface of the watery depths is frozen, can you fasten the chains of the Pleiades or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the constellations in their season and lead the bear and her cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you impose its authority on earth? Can you command the clouds so that a flood of water covers you? Can you send out lightning bolts and they go? Do they report to you, here we are? Who put wisdom in the heart or gave the mind understanding? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Or can tilt the water jars of heaven when the dust hardens like cast metal and the clods of dirt stick together? Can you hunt prey for a lioness or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait within their lairs? Who provides the raven's food when its young cry out to God and wonder about for lack of food? There's a lot going on there. And so we see that God speaks. We don't have to wait long for him to speak. And in verse 2, he begin, when he begins, he gets straight to the point. And what you're going to see as we read through these next two chapters in particular are several rhetorical questions. And the implication here is that God, he doesn't give Job time to answer because he doesn't expect Job to answer. And, and why wouldn't he expect him to answer? Because the reality is that Job can answer these questions. He doesn't know. God's simply reminding Job of who God is and who Job is. And you get a sense of that immediately in verses 2 and 3. He says, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. He says, who, who is this that darkens or obscures my counsel with all these ignorant words? In other words, like we've pointed out week after week, God has always acted with a righteous purpose. And Job and his friends, they've implied that God has ulterior motives, that he's not always righteous. And at the very least, you have to acknowledge that Job believes that he could have been better served by God. He could have treated me better. And God calls this argument what? He calls it ignorant words. And it's the ignorance of Job that God's going to point out all throughout this chapter. And I think we have to, we have to understand the difference between ignorance and stupidity. I don't know about you, but just, just living in this culture and society, I think those two words are often used interchangeably which means we don't understand what those words really mean. Stupidity implies knowledge that's misapplied. So I knew, but I just did wrong. It's stupid. Ignorance implies a complete lack of knowledge. I didn't know. I didn't know. And God says here that Job, and presumably his three friends, that they acted out of ignorance. They don't know. Job doesn't know what God knows. And that's the point that God's going to make over and over. If you don't know, why are you speaking out of turn? 
In verse 3, we see God doubles down on this idea, and he's rather aggressive with it. He's going to demand answers from Job, answers that Job can't provide. And so what God's going to do is he's going to prove his point pretty emphatically. And if, as we progress through 38 and 39, and we'll get to 39 next week, but we progress through these two chapters, what we're going to see are four rounds of questioning. Tonight we're going to look at three, and then we'll see a really long, drawn-out fourth round of questions in chapter 39 next week. But the first round of questions have to deal with the earth and the sea, about creation, and the sustaining of earth, the sustaining of the sea. I, th- I think the first question we see in verse 4 is one of the most famous passages from the entire book of Job. And in my opinion, as I've studied and as we've worked through this book, I think it essentially, verse 4, it establishes the whole point of the book. Like I mentioned previously, so many people, if you just ask individuals, what's the point of the book of Job? People are going to tell you, especially if they're familiar with the first few chapters and maybe don't even know the end, but a lot of people don't know the middle, the first thing they're going to tell you is, well, it kind of lets, lets you know why, good pe- why bad things happen to good people. Why do good people suffer? Which is the biggest lie possible, because that question is never even brought up. That's not what the book deals with. In verse 4, God says, Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you, if you have understanding. I'm the one that started this whole thing. Where were you? Which I think is the point of the whole book. Hey, I'm God and you're not. Who are you to tell me? And this is the whole point of the book. That may make you uncomfortable. I mean, if I was Job, we've all endured difficult times in life. If I'm Job, that's probably the last thing I want to hear. But it doesn't make it any less true. I'm God and you're not. Trust me. That's essentially what he says there when he says, Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you understand that. Another way to phrase that would be, Where were you when creation took place? When I filled the formless and the empty. If you go back to Genesis 1-2, we're getting ready to crank up Genesis. Right? The earth was formless and void. And God speaks and gives it form. Where were you, Job, when that took place? If you have all the answers, you should be able to explain where, where you were when that happened. How did it go about happening? God's making it clear from the very beginning that there are things that Job doesn't know or understand. He doesn't have a first-hand knowledge, but he acts like he does. God's putting Job in his place, and he does so by asking a very big question. If Job can't answer this question... In many ways, his whole argument is mute. doesn't matter. Job doesn't understand. He doesn't know the dimensions of the earth. How are they established? Why, why is the earth the size that it is? You can't answer that question. Neither can Job. It's, it's, it's interesting. I think some people miss the point of what's going on here in this book. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly no. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Well, it's easy for somebody to rebuttal and say, well, we, can, we know how large the earth is. That's not the point. Why is it that size? Why did God make it that way? You don't have the answer to that. Neither do I. Neither does Job. How is its foundation supported? I mean, we kind of know that it just hangs there and it does the rotation thing. And, but ultimately, we don't know why. How does that work? Replicate it right here. <laughs> you can't do it. How was its cornerstone laid? How did the process of creation begin? We don't know. Apart from God having completed it, 
The actual process of creation is a mystery to Job. What he knows is God did it. You can't explain the, the micro details of the whole thing. That, that very same concept should apply to us when we encounter the dangers and evils of evolution and all of these other modern scientific theories about creation. Because it comes down to this simple fact. Who was present at creation? The beginning of Genesis. I want to read you three different things. And, and maybe I'm stepping on Dell's toes next week. I don't know. Jen. All right. It's okay. Beginning of Genesis. Or maybe you, you, you can build upon it and make it better. But the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you, you flip over to the first chapter of John. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And then we have what we read here in Job 38, 7. While the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy when God created the earth. What do all three of those things teach us? That the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were present along with the angels at crea creation. That's it. That's it. But as mankind, what we do is we claim to understand how the earth came to be. But we weren't there. There's only one way to know what happened at creation with certainty. And that's to have a first-hand account. And that's exactly what we have in those three accounts. We're told what happened, when it happened, by the one who made it happen. The one who was present. It's foolish for us to claim knowledge that we don't possess. And that's the same message that God's presenting to Job right here. Why are you trying to pawn off knowledge of something that you don't really understand? Then God moves to the seas. If you think about the sea or the ocean, like how many of you have been to the ocean and stood on the beach? How many of you have been on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean? If you haven't been, I highly recommend that you, uh, not that kind of cruise ship, like a real cruise ship. Phenomenal vacation. <laughs> there ain't no buffet on that, on that ship. <laughs> how, both of those situations... How small do they make you feel? And you feel, I mean, there's days I'm like, I got it all together, man. I'm, I'm something. And then I stand, if you stand at the beach in front of the ocean, I mean, I'm powerless. I'm just a little bitty, little bitty nothing. The ocean and the sea are massive, and yet God has them in complete control. They make us feel so small, but God's the one that's in complete control. He asked Job about the creation of the open. Hey, Job, how'd that happen? How about the boundaries of the seas? Specifically, God asked Job, who enclosed the seas behind doors when it burst from the womb? In other words, who caused it to be and who controlled where it went? How'd that happen, Job? God tells Job in verse 11, he says, I simply declared you may come this far, but no further. That's what he said to the ocean. And again, I think there's some parallels here. I think that should draw our attention to Mark chapter 4, verses 39 and 40, where you encounter Jesus and the disciples 
and they're caught in the storm. And, and the disciples are literally scared for their life. They look at Jesus and they say, don't you care that we're going to die? What's wrong with you? Don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus simply says to the storm, silence, be still. And it was calm. The same way that the same God says in Job 38, hey, come on, ocean, right there, no further. He's in complete control. God is in control, and we're not. He alone has the ability to place boundaries on the seas or silence the storm. And it's, it's really interesting what Jesus said after that storm. He looks back at the disciples and he says, why, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Don't you have any faith? And I can, I can kind of feel as I read Job 38, that, kind of, that same statement is kind of woven behind the scenes in Job. Like God is putting Job in his place. And at the same time, he's calling on Job to understand, hey man, I've got this. I'm under control. There's no reason to fear. There's no reason to be so disgruntled. In verses 14 and 15, we read of God and his purpose. He says, The earth is changed by clay as it is by a seal. Its heels stand out like the folds of a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked, and the arm in violence, raised in violence is broken. All of God's creation reveals his glory, and it has his stamp of approval on it. You, you read there in verse 14, there's an analogy of the clay and a seal. And when you take the seal and you press upon a ball of clay, what happens is that seal, it makes an impression and leaves a mark. And God's done the same thing with what was formless and void. He's taken what was without beauty and he's made it beautiful. The hills stand out. Just, man, if you listen to that California crew that was over here, the things that we take for granted, it's so green over here. Look at the mountains. It's so beautiful. Yeah, that's God taking his seal and pressing into the clay. You can't look at creation and not see a creator. And it's all done with purpose. Things may not happen like we want them to happen. But God's creation, his purpose, and his plan is completely righteous. That's what he's trying to get across to Job. It's going to bring the wicked their due, and it's going to destroy all oppression. And God doubles down on his questioning... By asking Job, do you understand all this? And the answer is no, he's not capable. God controls the magnitude and the scope of the earth as well as the depths and the boundaries of the seas. And then he mentions death in verse 17. He says, have the, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Job, all Job knows is that death is a reality. He's, he's talked about it. We've heard him speak about it. We've heard him wish for it. But he doesn't fully comprehend it. If you remember back as we studied various conversations, it's like, I have complete faith that I'm going to see God again. I'm going to see my family again. I trust in life after death. And then there's other passages. Is there life after death? Like, he's not completely confident. He, does, he understands that death is reality. But he doesn't understand it completely. And neither can we. But what this passage should show us, what God's trying to say is that he's in complete control of it. We should be called as believers, we should be called to remember that Christ himself was not only shown the gates of death, just like we all will be, just like Job will be, but he conquered death through his resurrection. 
And again, what does that tell us? God's in complete control. Even of death, he's in complete control. And God comes back again to Job, saying, hey, claim understanding, big boy. Do you understand all of these things? And again, the reality is Job can't because he's not God. We get to the second round of questions in verse 19. God's going to speak about the weather. He's going to speak about the cycle of a day. He asks Job, essentially, hey, do you understand how the days and the nights work? Where does the daylight go? Where is its home? And where's the home of darkness? And again, it's almost like God is saying, can you make that happen? Can you make the sunrise? Can you make the sunset? And he even says, I mean, your days, your number of days or your age, it's very great. You should be able to do that, right, Job? You, you were there on the first day. He keeps hammering that point home. And again, the answer is no. Job wasn't there. Job can't orchestrate the cycle of a day. He can't make the sunrise. He can't make the sunset. It happens, and he's powerless to start it, stop it, or control it in any way. Then he shifts to the weather and the storehouse of precipitation and wind. These things don't just happen when we see them. That's the point that God's trying to make. It's raining. There's water falling from the sky. Well, where did that water come from? It's always been in existence. When it hails, where did I keep the hail before you saw it come out of the storm? It's always been in existence. God says, I have these things on hand so that I can use them for my purpose when I want to, where I want to. And he says, Job, explain to me how that works. And the truth is, Job can't. He doesn't know. And God says, not only can I do those things, I do it for my own purpose. There is no coincidence. I can, I can bring the rain where people don't live. I can bring the rain where people do live. I can use it to hinder warfare. I can use it for judgment. I can use it as a blessing. I can use it for any purpose that I so desire, where I so desire. And Job, you can't even control it, let alone control it with any sense of purpose. And Job kind of knows, he kind of knows, just like we kind of know, how magnificent God is. But what God is doing is expanding on that. He's providing information that, that supports, yeah, this is how great and magnificent I am. So much so that you can't even imagine it. Then he moves into the third round of questions, the last round here in chapter 38. He talks about the heavens. He's mentioning the constellations. It's as if he's asking Job, hey, can you place the stars where they go? Can you move them around as you wish? There's certain seasons by which they move. What do you know about that? And how much control do you have over that? There's also laws of heaven, Job. J Job wouldn't recognize them as we name them. But he would have understood what God was saying. There's rules that are put in place. And that's just the way things are. Do you understand that, Job? And then can you explain those things? If, if we think about how we've been educated, one of those would be what we call the law of gravity. Job, if you pick that rock up and you throw it, it's going to come down. Why? Why does it do that? Even today, as, as advanced as we claim that we are, scientists can't explain the law of gravity. They, don't, they know what it is. They kind of know how it operates, but they can't tell you why it is and why it exists. They don't know. 
The answer to why does it exist is this simple. Because God declared it to exist. That's why it exists. That's the point that God's making. Job has no authority in these laws. That got me to think, as I was reading through this, about just about space. You think about recently all these very wealthy individuals that are in such a hurry to get to space and in such a hurry to control space. Why, why, why do they want to get there? I think deep down it's because of the magnificence of God. I mean, it's so beautiful. It's such an experience that they can't experience here. And when you get there, it, you see things you've never seen before. It's the beauty of God's creation and the wonder. It's the wonder that draws them. And it's, what they don't realize is it's the wonder of God. But at a certain altitude, men and all objects, they experience weightlessness, right? That was like if you paid attention to the news at all, like two guys just went up and there's the argument like, were they in space? Were they not in space? Was it high enough to count? Well, but they both experienced weightlessness, so I guess it's considered space because they started floating around. It's like the cool thing about astronauts, right? You squeeze the water out of the thing, and you try to catch it. But why do they do that? Why, why, why is a man weightless when he gets to a certain altitude? I don't know, because God declared it. Men can experience it, but they can't control it. Only God can control it. So that's the point that God makes. And he circles back around to the weather again. And he, he tells Job, listen, I control the clouds in the heavens and the lightning that comes from those clouds. He says, hey, Job, do those things report to you? Almost like an army. Like so-and-so reporting for duty. That's what the lightning does. That's what the clouds do. God's in complete control of all things. And I don't want to go as far, I'm tempted to, but I don't want to go as far as saying that God is mocking Job, but at times it sure seems like that. But he, what he's doing is making a point. I'm the only one with supreme understanding and the only one that's in complete control of things. So quit acting like you can do those things. Quit acting like you have control. Quit acting like you have complete knowledge because you don't. I'm the one that has vast knowledge and you're the one that doesn't. I'm in complete control and at the end of the day... I think what the message that God is trying to communicate to Job and to his three friends and to Elihu who's standing there is it's inappropriate for Job or us to question the actions or motive of God because he knows things that I'm incapable of knowing. And when I, when I question, I'm putting myself on the same playing field. I'm putting myself at the same level. And that's just not a reality. He's the one in complete control, and I'm not. So, so what, is that, what does all that have for us to do with real life, right? What are the implications to us? And I've got six things here just for you to ponder as we leave. But the first is just that reminder that God is faithful to speak. Maybe, maybe you're in a frustrating situation in life, or maybe there's certain scenarios going on, and you're like, God, are you hearing me? Yeah, he's faithful to speak. If I'm faithful to call out, eventually he is going to speak into my life. Why has he done it sooner? I don't know, because he's the one in control and I'm not. He's working behind the scenes, and I have to trust that. But God is faithful to speak. The second is that God is in control of all the details. God's in control of all the details. I'm not. You're not. It's not, it's not proper for me to question you know, Dale said a, good, a wise thing this morning uh, in our prayer time where if we're all honest with ourselves, if we look back on our life, 
it's easy for us to see how God put his hand on us, how he's maneuvered us, how he's maneuvered other people, how he's maneuvered situations, and how he's used all of those to work in our life. It's easy to notice those things, but it's not so easy to notice those things right now. Like, I'll understand the right now, 10 years down the road. Oh, I can see how those things went together. He's in control of all those details. It's my job to trust him. It's not my job to question. The third thing is that God's limits work for good. You know, he, stood, he stands before the ocean and he says, this is where you go, you go no further. And every one of us in this room don't like to be told, hey, here's your limit. I don't want a boundary. I don't want a limit. You think about all these little kids that we have that are running around. Once I first learned to walk, like I want to go everywhere. You put up the baby gate. Why? Because you don't want the kid to go through there. Everything that you hold dear, near and dear in your life, you put four feet or higher off the ground because they're going to grab it and throw it or break it or eat it. Right? They want to go. They don't want any boundaries. But God's boundaries are limits. They work for good. If you think about, think about all the things that Job dealt with, but what do we easily forget? That in the first two chapters, God placed limits on what Satan could do. God's the one that imposed those limits. And his limits work for good. The fourth thing is that God's power and knowledge, it should humble us. God's power and knowledge should humble us. He's not telling Job all these things. He's not telling these men all of these things to make them feel this big for no purpose. They should humble us. They should draw us closer to him because we recognize that he's the one with the answers. He's the one with the authority. And we're not. And that leads to the fifth point, which is not our role to play God. It's not my role to play God. We think we're pretty good at it, and we like to do it, but that's not the role that we've been assigned. It's our responsibility to trust him. That's the difficult part. But that's the, that's the responsibility that we have, is to trust Him. To trust Him with the details. To trust Him with the limits. To trust Him in His power and knowledge and not my own. It's not my role to play God. It's my role to trust Him. And then lastly, just that reminder that even in His judgment, God's desire is to restore men. Even in His judgment, God desires to restore. You know, Job called out, I want to hear me. I need a judge. I want you to rule on this situation. And Job's going to get what he asked for. But the point in all of these questions, the point in this conversation that God's having with all these men, and specifically Job, is to draw them back to an understanding of this is who I am, this is who you are. Trust me, come near to me, because I'm your God. It's going to be okay. It's like what Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, you don't have any faith? What are you so afraid? You don't trust me? It's the same thing God's telling Job. Why are you so afraid? You don't trust me? I've got this. I've got it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just this continued study of Job. We, we praise you and thank you that we're near the finish line. It's been a long journey. But uh, we're so thankful that you are faithful to speak. We know that you are faithful to speak to Job, and we know that you're faithful to speak to us, Lord. Many times... You speak daily if we'll just open your word and meet you there. Lord, I pray that we'd be a faithful people that would do that, that we would trust in you, that we wouldn't try to do your job or play the role of God, but that we would trust you to recognize that you're the one with all the knowledge, all the power. You're the one that's in control of details. You're the one 
that who places boundaries and limits for our own good. Lord, I pray that we would trust in you, that we would serve you faithfully, and that we would constantly seek your face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.